Miss Macintosh, my darling, chapter 73, part 2. The other woman, women could put him out of their minds, and they had, and he hoped that they would forget him forever. But he wanted to be cherished like an old bouquet by Esther Longtree, mother of his little boy, wanted to have, he had written, a special place in the sealed room of her great, beautiful heart. When he thought of her, and that was always, he thought of the life he had missed, of harvest moons, of big drops of rain on the dust of country roads, of apple blossoms, of sweet hay and bales, of the great river, of children, little children whom he might have begotten by her. When he thought of her, he thought of the bald peak of his existence, the cloud formations of drifting lights and death. He would never forget her as long as he lived, never forget as long as he lived, the smell of cold apples in her hair, the tears of pleading for mercy she had shed in his arms, the angel's wings, the moldering faces, the hedges, the graveyard where he had met her in the moonlight. It was the graveyard where they had met, where he had taken her against her will, he remembered, and her cries. She could remember the graveyard, but not him. It was awful, this doubt of hers. If she had cried like a baby in his arms, there among the mossy stones and cold wings fluttering in fog and beams of moonlight, if this had really happened, then why would she forget this most unusual occasion, how she was vanquished, how she was laid low by a man in a graveyard? It had her baffled. There were all the details that she knew so well. Joe Goldberg must have been there. It was his greatest triumph, that to which his dying mind had returned and returned. The old mossy graveyard, the naked woman among the tombs, and the mother of his little child, whose age he could not guess. Because he had loved the mother, he had also loved the child. All the roaring crowds and their wild applause meant not so much to him in retrospect as a hillside graveyard and slumbering wings of angels, a night among the tombs where he had taken her, the big-bodied, beautiful woman, so ugly, cross-eyed, smiling, puzzled, a withered flower dangling from her mouth, her knees knocking together with fear her deformed foot hidden in the grass, as he, had rem as he remembered, and her cries and her silence. He had held her pinioned in his arms. He had knocked off the nose of an angel as they struggled. Now when he wrote to her, she could have held him in her arms, Joe Goldberg, worn thin as a shadow. If only he might see, possess her once again. Yet though he left the world, he left a piece of himself in it, his eyes, his hair, his mouth, the heavy weight, their dreamless child, so was glad that he had taken advantage of her and deflowered her there in the old, wind-swept, fog-swept graveyard and the immovable starlight, for there was nothing else for him, no triumph that was not dust but this. If he had put his livid impression upon her, it was the only real mark he had ever made on anyone. So, so though she might be bruised forever by his fist, he was still glad that he had hurt her who would remember him, he hoped. When the snow fell on his grave in a lonesome forest, remember Joe Goldberg, the golden cock, the fighting kid, it was his only hope. All other hopes had failed him when he wrote. To think that out of all nights, this night with her should have been the most important, most crucial one, the turning point. If she did not think so, too, that this had been the most important night, she was colder than any ice queen or world beauty with whom he had slept. How had it happened that he had met her? When? How? It had been strange, his stumbling on her in a graveyard, there where he had gone to spend the night because of his fear of the invisible. The other fellows had dared him to climb the hill alone. It had been his triumph over death. It was because God had been absent-minded, reeling among the stars, that he had met her. Esther Longtree, that foggy, windy night, there in the graveyard on the hillside above the river, that he had placed his multitudinous seed in her, a visible woman, 
the uncorrupted and uncorruptible Esther Longtree, a big woman of rosy flesh who would never thin even by a shade, who would grow old without wrinkles or gray hair or cruel memory, for in his memory she could have no age. In his memory no love could defile her or change her, for his memory was already failing him when he wrote, and his pulse was already low. He was putting his faith all in her, the mother of his little child conceived among the worms and angels, and he remembered the inscriptions, the hedges, the fences, and wanted her to bear him in mind forever, the dying father. Thus no wonder if she felt apologetic, for she could not have told him what he looked like, could not recall his featherweight champion, could not recall this featherweight champion with the big fists as easily as any other man, traveling salesman or tramp, any other man, a magician who had plucked pigeons out of his hat and playing cards out of the empty air and still born out of her arms. If only she could have known at least the date, the month, the year that the featherweight champion might have knocked her out among the old French tombs and crosses upon the straggling hillside on a foggy, windy night of shifting clarities and mysteries. The date would have helped. But it, ha but it had all happened so long ago. It made her feel bad, just the same. Guilty, ravaged, his love which could not die, which would go down through the ages, fighter, begetting fighter, all fighters fighting angels, even though all else be dust and ashes and wind and self-deception. If she had known the date, she might have felt whether it was something, a little hand, a fish moth, something. Her being so confused, she could not say even now without doubt. Yet if he had known that his son had never been born or had been stillborn, only a little foot, a snowflake and ash, how much more badly he would have felt when facing death alone in the snowy mountains. If he had known that his son was invisible, a member of the invisible choir, that she could not even guess now which one it was or where she had put it, maybe in the river, maybe in a hollow tree stump under soft, velvety cocoons, for all she could recollect, maybe nowhere, maybe under the persimmon tree or cherry tree or pecan tree, how would he have felt, and how would she have felt alone here, her heart suffering a terrible leakage because of the enormity of the past, the things that had escaped her, and she was so busy, and the rains fell, washing it away, stripping the low hills, and the winds blew, and the skies were empty, and she was always pregnant, and she could never have met a champion feather wait in a graveyard. If she could have gone to see him in Colorado, she would not have seen him, for it could, would have been a skeleton, an ivory skull and grinning teeth, and not that handsome featherweight. So she had not gone, of course, nor thought of going at the, at the time for fear she might not recognize him. He might, have not, he might not have recognized her. His mind had outlived his body, he had written, and that his mind had never been his strength. That was the hard part of it, that his mind had outlived his body, and why he had turned at last to Esther Longtree, immense, capacious, beautiful even in her wild, cross-eyed ugliness, beautiful even with her deformed foot, her black and blue marks, her strength of purpose. Among all the women whom he had betrayed, the beautiful movie stars, the world beauties, his mind turned only to one with a bald spot at the crown of her head, one with crossed eyes, as he remembered, for her eyes had always crossed at a certain moment. He was no different from other dying fathers who had written to her, she guessed. There was no difference except the place where they had met a graveyard instead of a field. He had sowed his wild oats in a graveyard, it seemed, the way it had happened, she had said. Some fellows over his friends had dared him to stay all night alone in the graveyard because of his fear of the invisible, of that which could not be struck, and he had climbed the hill fearful of his own shadow, and had found instead of the invisible, great-hipped, naked woman walking among the tombs, her head hanging, a withered flower hanging from her mouth, the night dews upon her forehead. God, she had been lusty, hard to conquer. The other women had been frail by comparison. 
She was the only woman he had ever struck. She had cried out when he had hit her under the jawbone. He had not intended to hurt her, but only to put his mark upon her, and proved to himself that she was visible and not a trick of the clouds and the wind. Now, from a glass hospital wall, as he wrote to her, he saw the clouds again, their drifting, and thought of her in his arms. Why should they have reminded him of her, so fleshy, clouds drifting like homeless children across a dark sky, reminding him of her weakness, her cry for mercy? Because it had been in a graveyard that this had happened, she supposed, and not in a field. For church bells were ringing when he had knocked her out and put a seed in her there under the wingtips of a moldy angel. There where the worms had crawled, there where the leaves had rustled like the returning dead, and she had cried, cried like a baby in his arms. Some of the old tombstones had fallen, the old grass grew high. There were marble slabs, dark and wet. They had slept together upon a marble slab, bodies interlocked in an embrace which she could not break. Hardly breathing at last as birds whirred, their soft wings and angels stared through the whiteness. Yet why could she remember nothing but the graveyard, not the champion featherweight? If she had gone to the graveyard with a man, her father might have found her, even if, it, even if it had been a feather's weight, for he was even then the night policeman patrolling the graveyard where the living couples met and separated them with a the stick. She never could have gone there. She knew she could not have, but the champion featherweight had been there, obviously, and remembered her. The crossed eyes, the dimpled chin, the wound, the slabs, the loose stones, red, rusted weeds, old tin cans filled with withered flowers, the animals, the pigs squealing at the foot of the hill. Everything as it must have been as it always was. The broken fence, broken by the animals which the undertaker had wanted to keep out. The open graves, the shovels, the urns, the birth control devices littering the bare ground, the paper sacks, the beer bottles, the crumbling angels, the baby angels, the crosses, the rustling owls, the winged beans, the inscriptions, the names, the dates, the old washerwoman's grave, old Foby statue with a bulbous nose, warts, wrinkles, sunbonnet. The way old Foby had wanted to be in heaven as she had been on earth. If the featherweight had not been there, how could he have remembered? How could he have mentioned the names, the dates, the sayings, ephemeral die at sunset, Coleman Bluebow, dead at the age of three, the others, Mrs. Abigail Porter, who folded up her tent and crept silently away. The tin laurel wreaths scattered on the ground, an empty hooded baby carriage blown along between two rows of lopsided tombs, the whirling leaves, the creeping fogs, the eyes, the ears, the hands, the hair, must have been quite awful. But it had not been awful, according to the dying father. It had been the very peak of his existence, his greatest victory, his joke on all the other fellows. For he had stumbled upon a live woman in the graveyard and had made love, wild love, biting her long eyelashes, sparring with no shadow or wraith, which could make but few demands, sparring with her pinkish, bluish body until it lay still, dark, cold as dew, immense, silent. He had knocked her out of a grave or two, his muscles swelling, his heart pounding, his head roaring, and there had been thirty rounds, and there had been a surprised look in her eyes, and there had been no umpire in the graveyard, no whistle, no applause. Their bed was a marble slab, where the great champion had leaned above her, had taken her, and she had, could imagine it, drifting, slow sensation as of peace when this was done. But she could not say for the life of her that it had been true, his touch, his presser, pressure, his strength, else how have forgotten it? might have been a feather drifting, and she might have been a cloud. Maybe it was some other woman he'd met. Might have been some other woman he had met among the angels, faceless, void beans, some other woman with immense swinging hips, with crossed eyes, puzzled smile, 
with blowing ragged hair. But could there have been two of them, another like her? So she had had many reasons for her silence as to the questions. Where was the little kid, his heir apparent, his fleecy boy? How old? How old? And what became of him? What became of him that was conceived upon the shaking marble slab among the worms and moldy angels in the fog? He should have known the answer. It seemed to Esther Longtree that the champion featherweight should have known the answer, what became of him that was conceived among the worms and angels, if ever he was conceived. If the child was born, the child was born dead and still, having such parents. No wonder if she was impatient when she thought of it. Besides, one who had been so popular, the champion featherweight, should have indulged himself with happier memories than all of a lonely hillside graveyard, especially as he had been on his way to another graveyard when he wrote to her his many pleas, unless, of course, he should be scattered as cold ashes from a cold sky at last and have no place but in her memory. His conscience regarding her had come too late to do her good. If he had not been dying, would he have written to her, asking for his? He had had no conscience when he took her in the graveyard, no thought of the possible consequences then, though she had told him how it was, no thought of the little one he had placed under her heart, his little child. And in this masculine indifference as to the fate of the woman was like all the other men who had deserted her. Years after the conception, writing to ask if a child had been born as yet, they were weighed down they were weighed upon by conscience only when they were dying, the conscience leaping into life at the last moment or moment after the last. She knew. She knew. Had she ever demanded child support? She had been grateful for a teething ring, a little shoe, grateful for toys, birthdays, birthday cakes, crumbs to scatter on the window sills that the stillborn ate. She had not asked for anything, been unselfish and unquestioning, had given birth to the children of strangers more often than to the children of friends, had gone through her cycle alone and suffered the disappointment, the stillborn, the immature, the malformed, or snowflakes or crutches or old withered rosebud or pieces of glass or voices. If the featherweight champion had entered into her life in a shining and darkened moment, she was profoundly sorry not to be able to place him anywhere, but though her heart was good and generous, it had its leakage. So many had escaped from it, falling like snow on the green grass. If now she had no weight, however, there might still be a chance. There might still be a chance, a weighty preponderance in favor of the faceless angels. The graveyard was, however, not the place for life's beginning. The graveyard was not her place, only the short way she took when she was coming home, for she was depressed by all those graves with little urns, the graves of little children lost by their loving parents, cut down on the flower of their youth, taken by the ghostly reaper's sickle while the dew of heaven was still upon them. Hers had had no funeral. Hers had been among... Hers had been hidden among old cocoons and autumn leaves and under snow. The fathers were sterile and selfish and selfish-hearted. That was why, when they were dying, she would be silent, busy. That was why she could bear to answer no question, even if it was a dying featherweight asking. His hand trembling as he wrote, trembling like an autumn leaf. Where was the little shadow boxer now? Boxing or in a box? Shadow or light or fire? He who was conceived among the worms and guardian angels upon a low hill. Besides, he could have been right, and she could have been wrong, and there was no answer but time. A fury inhabited her womb, a shadow boxing. It might be his, so old it might creep forth as a white-bearded child leaning on a crutch. And who would want it but she? And would she want it, so old, white, as winged milk pod, creeping directly from the womb to the grave? Anything might happen if anything might happen. Maybe the old piano tuner had done it best, playing upon the broken chords. Maybe the tin roofer had done it. Maybe the iron monger. 
maybe the wandering magician plucking a playing card out of her hair. Still, what she could not remember might be remembered even if by no one's brain. The featherweight, the angels, the bright chilly eyes of strangers, the folded hands, the wings, the river, the islands, the moon, the moon, the moon. Diving birds splashed in the night, the rattle of pebbles, a handful of hair, the distant honking of an automobile because the featherweight's friends were waiting. The facts, the fugitive facts of life. What were all the facts worth but a world of clouds and water and wind and faces? If the child was conceived, then the child was conceived. If not, then not. If not, then always. It might have been some other woman in the graveyard, some other man, for if it was Esther Longtree, as he said and was himself, the champion featherweight, then how was it that she could remember only the wet stars, the closed eyes, the wet, small, sighing winds? And how was it that he could remember the inscriptions, the marble slab, the wound upon her hip, the broken fences? He might have been there, and she might have been there. The heavyweight might still be his. What was not true now might one day be true. That was another reason for her silence. For her not having answered those questions, he could not be answered. It would be useless, besides, to argue with a dying man who would always win the argument, just by breathing no more. If the featherweight was the weight of a feather, what could she at? What could she answer? Sleepily pregnant and swelling, trying to think of all. She could not be honest and yet satisfactory to all the parties concerned with her case. She bothered her head not too much with the thought of the fathers and bothered her head with the thought of the children. Her troubles, her troubles, little voices. If she was haunted by this lost featherweight, it was only because strained though she would, she had no real memory of him, the champion, although she could have remembered the frail and weak prodding her little like brambles. Her lack of any feeling was her deepest feeling now. Her feelings were all were over. If he had been so heartless, why should her burdened heart ache for him? He had deflowered her in the autumn in the graveyard, had knocked her out, stone cold, had left her to face the vast humiliation, had been fickle and cruel, whereas she had been faithful and pregnant. A woman's faith was her pregnancy, the swelling hips, the symptoms, the signs, the great increase from which was no escape. And she remembered it distinctly, not his touch, his pressure, the muscular tone, the immense strength, the many blows, his triumph, his golden victory where the autumn leaves were falling and whirling. No pressure had he in her sad, empty memory, no weight, even if his heart had beaten against her heart, even if she had resisted and had been vanquished like a woman. Might as well have been even within the weight of the feather, for all she knew or cared. Yet she remembered all else, the conception, the confinement, the birth cry, and the darkness of a single night, of sobbings and echoes and silence. Herself alone remembered all else, the creeping fogs, the leaning tombs, the pigs squealing at the foot of the hill, the red, stained grass, the broken fence, the kiss without touch, the love without pressure. The old gray mule had stood with head hanging over a fence, a withered flower in its mouth. Ever when Esther Longtree was with her lover, the sterile father, some puny salesman, would, would this old mule be there with head hanging, stubborn and sad and thoughtful, the barren animal who could not be mated, who could not have a family? The old mule's shadow loomed broken against every horizon. Why would there always be this visitant, the old mule coming where she was, even to that graveyard where the fe champion featherweight had met with her? Why haunting her love and the conception and the memory? The old mule had no business with Esther Longtree. The old mule had no business where Esther Longtree was. 
for the mother mule had only rudimentary breasts, small stalks, and when she came into heat, this would sometimes happen because of life's vagaries and life's persistence. Yet the heat was meaningless, for nothing could be born, but it was but if it was conceived and was born, then it was lost and stillborn. No little mules as cold as lilies would dream if the old mule's breast accepted a dream. Then why dream? The old mule was mean. The old mule always did follow her, Esther Longtree. Bald spotted cross-eyed, her big head hanging, her tongue hanging out, just like a mule's. Champion Featherweight had seen it too. So she could not be entirely mistaken. There were some things agreed upon. There were some things she was certain of. If not of the featherweight, then certain of the mule in her own loneliness. So mulish, as people said, dreaming alone in her heat. Esther Longtree saw loneliness in the midst of loneliness. Sterility in the midst of death, though she was always pregnant. And the cold mouths of little ones were pressed against her swollen breasts. And the shrill whistle of the stillborn made her headache. There had been so many, all like a dream that could not die.